If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Rob Attar, and this is a third History Extra podcast for June 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... The priority of this mission was to get the reinforcements and troops to Louis in London. That was Sean McGlynn on the 1217 Battle of Sandwich. I think we've got it so wrong so far, what ancient Egypt was and what it stood for, and how it worked. And that was John Romer discussing Egyptology. podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. And you can find the magazine in all good news agents and you can get it on subscription. There are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. As you may know, we're also available digitally these days. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. And if you'd like more information on the iPad edition, please visit historyextra.com forward slash iPad. And as always, we can be found on facebook.com forward slash historyextra and twitter.com forward slash historyextra. Sean McGlynn is a medieval historian who has recently written a book called Blood Cries Afar, The Forgotten Invasion of England, 1216. As a result of that, we asked him to write a feature for the July issue of BBC History magazine about one of the key episodes in the War of 1216, the Battle of Sandwich. BBC History magazine editor Dave Musgrove met up with Sean to talk more about it. We're talking about the Battle of Sandwich. Um, So the first thing is, what's the Battle of Sandwich? Okay, this is in August 1217. It was the climax of the French invasion of England which had started in May 1216. Um, and the French had occupied much of the country for over a year, um, over a third of the country. In May, they had a major defeat at the Battle of Lincoln and they needed reinforcements. So they retreated back to th- their stronghold of London where they were held, held up. And Louis, Prince Louis, who was the leader of the French expedition, sent to his wife, Blanche of Castile, for reinforcements. She amassed this large force which assembled... Um, in the summer of 1217, it set sail for England. If the forces had reached England, it would have enabled Louis to sustain his campaign and who knows, have won the war in England against the um, royalists and perhaps achieve his aim of becoming king of England. But as it turned out, the the, the English organised their own fleet. They went to meet each other in the middle of the Channel. There was a very major battle, very bloody, uh, which the English defeated the French and stopped all these uh, this army of knights, infantry, even trebuchets on board one of the ships and from reaching London. And so without those reinforcements, Louis couldn't continue the invasion and the invasion was over and Louis had to seek peace terms. Okay. 
Um, so I think probably we need to step back a little. What's what's the context of this? Why were the French in England at the time? Why had they invaded in the first place? The, the, the real context of this is Magna Carta civil war with the barons rebelling against King John in 1215. They needed outside help. John was powerful in that he had a network of royal castles, so the barons needed a strong backup force to help oust John. So in order to do this, they asked Prince Louis of France if he would like to be king of England, and not surprisingly, he said, yes, I would. And so he came over with a force, um, and he, with, together with his own troops and with the English barons, at one point, they uh, had occupied, as I said, over a third of England, and even at one stage, two-thirds of the baronage of England went over to support Louis and recognised him as king. And even the King of Scotland came all the way down to Dover to pay homage to Louis as King of England. And the uh, so things were going very well for, for Louis and the French. But when John died, the resentment against John couldn't be passed on to the resentment against his young nine-year-old heir, Henry III. So that swung the balance a bit. And over time then the royalist forces managed to counterattack and have a resurgence against the French. Um, so, clearly the, the, the battle, this, this sea battle, is an important moment in this story. Uh, how much do we actually know about what went on during the battle itself? Actually, quite a lot. It's unusual. Most sea battles don't get much description or accounts in from, from the medieval world um, through people not being there or through second-hand reports but this battle we actually have um, at least four major sources some of which go into tremendous detail um, and from these four sources we can have a really good understanding of, of what occurred in this medieval naval battle so it was recognised as a big event and treated as a big event in the chronicles of the time and from what you've said, we, we, can, we can actually get a sense of the tactics employed. Mm -hmm, yes. Um, one historian once said, you know, a, a medieval admiral never went to sea seeking to destroy an enemy fleet. But actually, this is exactly what happened in 1217. Uh, the English went out to meet the French. The French were coming over with about 80 ships, half of which had been transport ships. The English had just 40 ships, but they're all fighting ships. The English, under their admiral Hubert de Burr, headed for the French and at the last minute veered off and the French thought, ah, oh, they've, they've uh, lost courage and that they didn't want to um, engage with them. But actually the English had done that deliberately to get behind them so they had the wind behind, they had the, the, wind behind the English. This therefore enabled when the English to catch up from the French from behind, hurl lime dust, pots of lime dust onto the French decks and the wind blew the, the, the dust into the French eyes and blinded them. And this was one of the mo major reasons why the English won, because many of the French were blinded by this lime dust which the English had gotten behind them. And was this uh, an innovative tactic, using lime dust, or was it uh, commonly used in land battle? It w wasn't used in land battle. Um, I haven't seen it being used in other battles before. But again, certainly for northern Europe, it's a rare thing. I wouldn't be surprised if it had been used in the Mediterranean, but in, in northern Europe we don't hear of it because we don't have many accounts of naval battles, so mm. it's hard to know. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Naval battles, you don't really associate naval battles with this period, or at least I don't, in my ignorance. I mean, did many of them actually go on? My impression would be that normally 
ships would convey an army to get somewhere and then there would be a land battle? Or am I just missing out because the sources don't tell us much? No, no, that's pretty much true. Most naval battles, and there weren't many, um, tended to occur just offshore for the landing of troops, as you say. Um, The English had a victory in 1213 at the Battle of Dam under similar circumstances where they caught the French fleet in harbour by surprise, so they attacked it in the harbour. But otherwise, you, you don't have many major naval battles. The next big one that we hear about is in 1340, the Battle of Sluys with Edward III. And many historians consider this to be the first major English naval battle, but it wasn't, Sandwich was. But the historians say of Edward's battle that the English Navy was inexperienced because they haven't had much um, uh, much first-hand knowledge of fighting. So the naval battles were actually quite rare. You'd have small... Pr- engagements with pirates and the like but nothing major so sometimes we think of you know the period which i write about is somehow been the origins of a royal navy um but then some people say that privilege belongs to alfred and fighting against vikings but no there, there weren't many naval battles to to speak of certainly that we know of and it's it sounds as if the um the english fleet or at least the english commander um must have had a, a decent understanding of, of naval tactics, naval ideas to you know to make the feint to get round and, and be behind you know up upwind. Um, so, did actually the English um, mariners have a good idea about how to win a battle? Did they have any sort of naval reputation uh, behind them? Did they know what they were doing? It seems that they did. Um, some sources at this time will actually say about we won the battle because. We, the English, won the battle because we had superior knowledge of the sea and we knew how to fight better at sea than the French. Um, And even the French king, Philip Augustus, had said um, at one point, uh, the ways of the sea are unknown to us, um, but after the defeat at Dalmat against the English. So there was a very real sense at the time that the English were superior um, uh, over their enemies. Uh, We have to remember, actually, again, it's easily forgotten, but there's a lot of activity going around the Channel Islands as well with the fighting with the French and the like. So a lot of experience would have been gained uh, from from that. And certainly one of the English chief English naval captains, Philip Dalbini, was a veteran of fighting in the Channel Islands and patrolling for pirates along the English Channel coast. So there does seem to have been a real reputation, England as a nation of sailors already by this stage. Yeah, the fleet that departed... Um did, did England have any sort of standing navy at the time? Was was this a, a you know a royal naval fleet, or was this just an amalgamation of ships that could be gathered together and go and uh, and and take the fight to the French? Uh, the origins of the royal navy are very obscure, and it's hard to say. But it's, as you say, as and when there was an exigency or a threat, so the the navy would expand. Or not the core of the navy at this time was based on what's called the Sank ports, some ports along the uh, south coast, and they had to provide fifty seven ships with a crew of 22 men for 15 days of the year. Um, otherwise, they'd just be paid for. And just before the battle, an interesting episode happens in which William the Marshal, who is a regent of England, he, he, he meets with the representatives of these naval towns, these sank ports. And these representatives say, you know, we'd like to help you, but under King John, we've lost a lot of our privileges and concessions, and he's taxed us heavily. But if you can do something for us, we'll be more than happy to help you. So William Marshall grants them all sorts of concessions, and then they join in 
very happily to fight the French because they know they're on for a big bonus in the, in the battle and to regain some of the privileges. So there is a sense of a core of a Royal Navy. Portsmouth as a naval base was built in the reign of Richard the Lionheart, um, but it very much fluctuated over time, as, as you suggest, very much so. And what sort of ships did, did the fleet have at their disposal? I mean, you, you mentioned fighting ships, but, I mean, did, did they actually have ships that were made specifically for fighting? We don't have warships at this time, surely? Well, they, they, they had all sorts of ships, and they could be modified with you know, the, the famous forecastles and up fighting platforms on the ships. So yeah, there's a large ship involved on the English side, which was a cog, um, and this was a, a large platform with the castles on it to shoot down at the French. And because the English ships weren't so heavily laden with supplies, they were higher in the water, so they gave them a height advantage. But the other uh, main fighting ship was the galley with the uh, uh, bow reinforced with copper ram- rammer, which would sink other ships by hitting them below the waterline. And that they were in use here and seemed to have been quite effective. Would the French have been expecting to have been attacked, or were they intending that they would just get across the channel and land their their, their land forces? Uh, well, they they must have expected to be attacked. They could be seen as a clear day, you know, from across can see across the channel. They were probably hoping, by weight of numbers, perhaps to force their way through, um, or just hope that the English would not engage with them fully or may not be prepared. But both sides knew what the other side was up to, really, because they had. To intelligence, spies uh, and the like. So that's why the the French had about 40, maybe 40 escort ships, uh, convoy ships, to uh, to escort the convoy against against the English. So they were prepared for battle, but they would love to have avoided it. One of the French chronicles actually says that the French engaged with the English first. I think that's a matter of honour. But the, the priority of this mission was to get the reinforcements and troops to Louis in London. So that was their tight aim, not to, not to engage with the English. But the English wanted very much to engage with them. Um, and, and Louis was in London all the time. He didn't come and stand on the, on the cliffs of Dover or anything. And, uh... it, it, no, he, he was earlier on. Um, um, it, around May time, that he would base himself very much at Dover at the siege of the castle. So he knew the area very well. Um, but he was very... Uh, dejected, to put it mildly, when he heard of the defeat, because he knew then that his his campaign was basically over. And do we know where um, the young King Henry III was at the time? Was he in the vicinity, or um, he he would have been kept safe? The the regent and his forces had gone to Canterbury and then off to to Sandwich. Uh, the king at this time would probably have been maybe in the Royal Stronghold of Oxford or something like that, being only nine years old. He had been near to the Battle of Lincoln in 1217, in May 1217. But he was just kind of there for, to inspire people, I suppose, by the presence of royalty and to reassure people this is the true and proper king. But he wasn't actually, as far, he wasn't actually on the shore there, sort of cheering them on from the sidelines. That's what I'm wondering. I mean, how, how quickly did news get back to the various protagonists? W- would you actually have been able to see the, 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 the progress of the battle from the yes. coast of, of England? Pretty much so, because it, I mean, it'd be confusing, mm. but it was, it was pretty much it was a very, very clear day. Um, and both sides had uh, lots of preparation. The English were expecting this at any time. They had long made preparations for it, building up the fleet, getting ships in from Ireland and, and, and the like to, to build up and ready for it. So, yes, it would have been viewed uh, pretty much from the shore. Mm. Okay. 
Tell me a little bit about um, Eustace the monk. We talked a little bit about um, de Burr, the, uh, the, the English captain, um, but uh, on the French side there's this uh, enigmatic character called Eustace the monk. Eustace the monk is one of the great characters from the Middle Ages. He truly is. Um, he has a romance story written about him and it depicts him as being a very bad monk, um, foul-mouthed, uh, cross-dressing as a woman, to trick people and uh, breaking wind and blaming it on his horse's saddle. Uh, he was a monk for a while, but decided it wasn't the life for him. He became a pirate and he fought with King John on, and served King John from, for about 10 years from 1205, nine, 10 years from there. According to the story about Eustace, his uh, wife was taken hostage by John, which is not uncommon. John did that uh, with many of the nobles. But his daughter was, according to legend, disfigured, burnt and killed by John so that was one reason perhaps why Eustace went against John but also Eustace was getting quite powerful in his own right and he perhaps he could see which way the wind was blowing the Capetian French were on the rise so he thought it may be better to serve the French so he went to serve Louis and was Louis's admiral and at the end of the battle the English look for Eustace on his flagship they find him hiding in the holds of the ship. They drag him out onto the deck, and he's offered the choice of being beheaded on the trebuchet, that the, the siege machine that the ship is carrying, or being beheaded over the railings of the ship. Now, if it were the latter of the railings, they obviously held onto his hair because his head was kept after it's cut off and then paraded on a spike round Canterbury in cities of England to show that this character, who was an infamous pirate, is kind of like a bogeyman of the time. You know, if you're not careful, you're just the monk will come and get you so his head was paraded around the towns to reassure people that he was truly dead okay so uh, the french lose eustace loses his head and the, and the french fleet doesn't doesn't get through do, do any elements of the french fleet get through no nope. uh no we don't know the exact losses of the french fleet certainly some of the french ships were captured and then made part of the the english navy or naval forces um but otherwise the the main capital ship is the the, the ship count the most um, important weaponry, knights and uh, horses and treasure is captured. Some of the other ships get home, but there's no chance of anything being salvaged from it for the French. And may, according to one chronicle source, maybe 4,000 French sailors were, quote, feeding the fish. Right, OK. So it's a major, major defeat for the French and put an end to any prospect of the invasion continuing or being successful. Yeah, so that's the upshot is Louis was that's basically, that, that's his time's up, he has to yeah, go home. That's the last, last throw of the dice for Louis, yeah. And, and does he then go home? Uh, yeah, within a month he's come to terms with agreement. He gets generous terms because he had been successful um, in, in England and he was still in London with a sizable force. Um, and at one point, even when he was in London, he did think of making a last kind of charge out against the enemy, but... Uh, they came to terms. He was given generous payment to go home and never come back uh, within a month, and that, and that was the end of it. Hmm. So, it's, you know, in, in, the, in the run of English history, it's, um, it's, it's a fairly significant event. It, you know, it enables Henry III to establish himself on his throne. Henry III has a long reign, and you get the first stirrings of Parliament and such like during his reign. So, obviously, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an important moment. So... Um, with that in mind, the, my, my closing question is: You mentioned, you know, the Battle of Sloy later on, and a lot of historians see that as the first naval naval victory, the first important naval um, battle by the English. Why doesn't this battle get, you know, more credence in in the pantheon? 
I, it, it's odd because it's so well recorded. Um, I think one of the reasons is because it comes in the wake of the Magna Carta, and it's in the shadow of Magna Carta from 1215, and the reissues of Magna Carta. Also because it uh, doesn't fit into a reign quite nicely. The, the war starts at the end of John's reign and carries on across the reign. And so I think for those two reasons, maybe it's forgotten. But it, it's strange. I think the focus is on, as you say, with um, Edward III and the Hundred Years' War and the great victories of Edward III. It kind of gets lost within that. And it's very odd because it's, as you say, a very significant battle. And the people at the time considered it as a major battle and recorded it as such. So it's one of these things I just think has been overlooked. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Sean McGlynn. You can read a feature about the Battle of Sandwich in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale in the UK now. Sean's book, Blood Cries Afar, The Forgotten Invasion of England, 1216, is published now by the History Press. And there's a lot more great history in the July issue of the magazine, including articles on the key moments of Britain's civil war, Africans in Tudor England, the Puritan war on sports, and five myths of the great escape. As we mentioned, the issue is out now in the UK, and it's also available on our Kindle, iPad and Zinio editions, which you can access internationally. And now we have a short advert. Want to enjoy great historic days out this summer? Membership to Historic Royal Palaces allows free and unlimited entry to the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, the Banqueting House, Kensington Palace and Kew Palace. With Olympic events and celebrations at Hampton Court Palace, plus exclusive member events and an array of new exhibitions across the palaces, 2012 promises to be the year to be a member. Prices start from just £43 a year. Visit hrp.org.uk or call 0844 482 to become a member of our historic royal family.
John Romer is an Egyptologist with 45 years' experience. He is also an established author and TV presenter. His latest book is the first in a two-volume history of ancient Egypt, taking the story from the early farmers to the rise of the pyramids. I spoke to John a while back to discover his thoughts on the origins of this remarkable civilization, and to find out why our thinking on Egypt may need to be radically revised. What new light does your book shed on this period of Egyptian history? I think it turns it turns the subject from a textbook into a comprehensible story. Uh, other histories of early Egypt that you read uh, recite all these factoids about these various civilizations and things that one followed the other, but in so doing, I think they miss the essential plot, which is how in 1,500 years people turn from being subsistence farmers, the first Neolithic farmers in Egypt, to building the Great Pyramid. And all that that implies, that is, forming a state, uh, a nation under a particular person, the organisation. So why do you think it was that this incredible civilization developed in this specific area? I, I can't give an answer to that, neither can anybody else. It's a bit like asking why the leaves on oak trees are a particular shape, I think. But I have a very strong suspicion that is due to the River Nile itself. Egypt imported farming technologies from outside, from Asia. But the farming technologies from outside were based on rain and water. When it got to Egypt, to survive, it had to sort of reinvent Neolithic technology. And it had to reinvent it to go with the particular extraordinarily strange environment of the Nile Valley. And I think that that started them off on what turned out to be this extraordinary adventure because it became such a wonderful place to farm. I mean, the world's original greenhouse where you can get like four crops a year uh, with, some, uh, with some seeds that you plant, that it became extraordinarily, amazingly prosperous. So if you want to look for the organisation of the latest state, the thing you have to do is to go back and look and see how they were organising those first farming communities, what they were interested in. And then you can see that there's a sort of a storyline evolves, a way of doing things that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the, as, as the people in the Lower Nile get more prosperous. And so was it because they had this surplus of crops that gave them enough time to develop other areas? Yeah, it's not... I mean, you know, people always talk about ancient Egypt as being, you know, taxed. They used to go around and wallop the peasants. Well, I think they did that in the 19th century, but I think the earlier periods is a bit more subtle. I think that subsistence farmers tend only to grow enough to live on and a bit to have a bit of peace and quiet. If you're going to eventually go from subsistence farming in 1,500 years to building the Great Pyramid, you've got to actually organise the population. And I think the story is one of internal colonisation. The, the reason why the, the uh, king and his court... Uh, grew larger and more successful was because they were colonising land all the time and opening up new areas for cultivation. So the surpluses got so enormous from this opening up of the land that they could let 10 or 20% of the population go and work on doing things that weren't involved with growing crops, which is almost unique in the entire ancient world. So what would you see as some of the key milestones on the development of early Egypt? Oh, I think the first farmers, and the first evidence we have of those, they were obviously beside the Nile as well, but they've all disappeared under the river silt. 
all evidence of them. But the first farmers by the foam lake, I would say, are very, very important because there you can see the Neolithic technology stripped to its bone, the wheat, the saving of crops, the flint sickles to gather it with, weaving, basket making, all these things which blown up to ridiculous proportions actually turn out to be the pharaonic state. I mean, basket weaving and textile designing is quite a complicated visual mathematic process. It's the same sort of process you get involved even in building the Great Pyramid, whereas the crops barely change until the Greeks and Romans come and actually change the type of wheat they're growing in Egypt. So I'd say that's the really important example at the beginning. And I would say other steps after five or six hundred years is this taking of the cult of killing things at graveyards into the cities. There seems to have been in some of the larger settlements in the south sort of courtyards where they killed lots and lots of animals, presumably at big feasts. And it seems that they killed people there as well. And that is the basis of the ancient Egyptian religion that will develop later on. So I would say they're the two key moments. If you want a third moment, obviously the founding of the state, which isn't really a founding of the state in the sense that we know it. All we've got is a picture of a guy with a hat we call a crown on. And that's very important because he's the first king and he's recognized as the first king by his successors. And that's important because they start counting time at that moment. And the idea of a national history begins with Nama. I mean, we, we look back and we say, oh, it's the first king and Egypt is united. But they're all terms, of course, that they, nobody could have possibly understood in those days. Just because you've got one guy who leads doesn't mean you're going to get succession. So that's an important moment. And the last one, I think, is the invention of the Egyptian gods as figures that look like humans. And that occurs shortly before the pyramids, I think sure the pyramids were built. Why do you think it was that these pharaohs emerged? What do you think set that in motion? I, I, I don't go on theories. I don't sort of have theories about things. I try and work from facts. Uh, that's not facts gleaned from later hieroglyphs, which are very problematic, but facts on the ground that you can see in the sand of Egypt. And what I would say is that the earliest examples of organization in ancient Egypt are really based around uh, making things, making pots and making boats outside the family and weaving inside the family and, of course, food preparation. And I think if you take those four different things, the pharaoh can end up uh, or be seen as somebody who has actually in charge of boats. I mean, you know, even later in Egyptian history, the various officers of court were often compared to the officers on a boat with the various rowers and uh, captains and one thing and another. So um, I think that if you're looking for ironic organization, that's where it comes from. I think if you're looking for the idea of the divine pharaoh, that is a 19th century idea and nothing to do with ancient Egypt at all. So how did they see the pharaohs then, if it's very different from that Victorian idea? Well, I mean, I think they were around a long time, you know, so I think lots of people saw him in different ways at different times. But I think at the beginning, he was the main man. He was the person whose name got stamped on a whole lot of ancient trade routes. Nama's name, Nama being the first pharaoh of Egypt, Nama's name is more common as a, a pair of hieroglyphs than all of the earlier 
uh, petty uh, princes and things that seem to have been around before him. What he seems to have done is simply one man taking control of a whole lot of trading networks that ran from Palestine right down to Aswan. So, I mean, at first, he is a sort of logo, a name, like Coca-Cola or something, a particular style that goes on a pot. And his successors just keep on doing that. Of course, as they are a trading network, when they die, they're doing the same sort of thing that they were doing when they, was, they were alive, which is keeping, uh, keeping and checking huge amounts of materials and supplies. They need to do that when they're alive because they weren't farmers. These were the first non-subsistence people in Egypt. And so to live, they had to get other people's crops in. That's why they're so keen on checking. Everybody says the ancient Egyptians were obsessed with checking. Well, of course they were. If they didn't check, they starved. So the court actually gathered stuff up. And it was that gathering of stuff that actually the pharaoh was in charge of. And it was the identity of the court. The court was a living activity. And the monuments are just the products of what to ordinary people they would have seen as the living activity of the state going on around them, building pyramids, collecting stuff up, putting it in tombs or, or whatever it was. How do you think the pyramids came about then as part of this? I think the pharaoh came up as a sort of trading master. His name went on all of the names of the earlier trading routes that stretch back hundreds of years into history. He is actually in charge of activity. The activities in charge of is gathering stuff up to feed the court. I mean, these people, the court and the pharaoh, have migrated from Upper Egypt to Memphis, where the Nile Valley is quite narrow, and there's no way that could have the, the land there could have fed everybody. So they were using all of Egypt to feed this growing organisation. It was so successful this activity of bringing stuff into the centre that the activity itself got bigger and bigger and bigger. The tombs got bigger and bigger and bigger. The, the pharaonic uh, court itself got larger and larger, and the pyramids are just a result of this excess of court activity. Of course, after the first ones, they sort of withdrew from it, so the later pyramids are smaller, and the state becomes more settled. But all those early royal tombs are just gigantic exaggerations of much older prehistoric tombs, where the tombs are seen really as part of the identity of the living community, and the living and the dead live side by side as part of a single entity. So the pyramids, if you like, are gross excess, but not in the sense of megalomania or anything, just in the sense of the court itself and its organisation being so incredibly successful. So it's, it's more about the court rather than just the individual pharaoh? Yeah, we know nothing about any of the pharaohs at all. All we know about is very tiny tiny weeny fraction about the organization of the court we know it practically everything from tombs and if you look at the tombs what you see there is simulacra to some extent of the living court the earlier tombs before the pyramids so there are huge magazines stuffed with everything you'd need to make large and lavish uh, farming estates they're stuffed with tools they're stuffed with all the equipment you would have to amuse the great household that was running it, and they're filled with grain. And the pyramids, if you like, are a gross extension of that sort of process. People themselves, I think, uh, were just getting more and more successful as a nation. It's, it's that thing where one man in a hut can do so much, 10 can do so much, but when you get three quarters of a million people and they're still working that hard, 
and you combine all the effort together, you can build yourself a pyramid, as they did. Proof, facts on the ground. <laughs> Why do you think it was that the state became so successful and the people worked so hard for it? Was it just good rule? I don't... Yeah, well, you got to... They invented the idea of rule. It was the first place in the world that was bigger than a single conurbation of houses, what we now would call a city, but they weren't, of course, in those days. Uh, so this whole idea is completely new. And the whole population of the Nile Valley was caught up in this process, which was, I mean, as, as I said at the beginning, I mean, it's just an incredibly good place to farm. And you have enormous amounts of surplus crops and things like this. And I, and I think that, plus the fact that they were extraordinarily good rulers and they had a very clear idea of their place within the Nile Valley. So they had a sort of understanding of their whole, they uh, had a world view. And that world view was based on, you know, the sun going over the Nile Valley, the river flooding every year. And the whole population was, saw themselves inside that view. And I think that they all work together. And it's just a t t together thing. And I don't know whether it was good rule or bad rule or whether they were brutal or friendly or what they were. We look at states from the other end of the telescope. We look at them and say, oh, well, it was this sort of an economy and that sort of rule and all that. But they are still in the process of inventing the whole thing. So in a sense, you can't analyze it in terms of an economy or something. You can, but it's pointless because they were inventing all those things. So there's nothing to compare it to for the time? Nothing. Nothing in the world, nor since, of course. I mean, the pyramids are still the world's largest buildings made of stone blocks. And they're probably the most accurate buildings ever built. So there's been nothing like it before or since. It's an incredible phenomenon. And we, by the way, today are stuck with an enormous number of things that were invented in ancient Egypt, from the idea of the sacred sacredness of state to the idea of gods in human form to uh, kings that are crowned on thrones to processions at universities that carry maces just like King Nama did around. I mean, as, as that in those days, of course, he was the arbiter of life and death. Uh, but I mean, we are just stuck with so many of the things the ancient Egyptians invented. We'd never been able to better it. How much do you think there is still left to find out about this period? Uh, huge amounts, especially in the Nile Delta. Um, uh, the Nile Delta needs proper good modern archaeology uh, surveys, which is now getting, and half of Egypt's history is in the Delta. I think we've got it so wrong so far, what ancient Egypt was and what it stood for and how it worked. And half of that story, or half of the greater part of half that story is still buried in the Delta. I think in Upper Egypt, they'll find more... Tombs. I mean, you dig in a cemetery, you dig up tombs, you'll find more cemeteries, you'll find, you know, ruined temples and things, sure, find more of those. Um, and, you know, God willing, somebody one day will find a blooming great library full of papyrus, and that will please everybody. But um, to my mind, we need to move beyond translation of ancient words, because there's an e ancient Egypt out there which existed apart from the literature, and that we're still beginning to discover. And so what, what mistakes do you think people have made about the history of ancient Egypt? Uh, well, in a banal way, in the most banal way, the popular view of ancient Egypt, um, which is, you know, didn't change much from the Napoleonic expedition through Cecil B. DeMille 
down to a lot of documentaries you see on television, really. I mean, they sort of assumed that ancient Egypt were a bunch of white guys, a bit like Louis XV, uh, in funny frocks. And uh, as I keep trying to say, if you really want to understand ancient Egypt, you have to stop saying it's like something else and imagine people actually inventing all that stuff. It's not like anything else. It's the one original. So I would say that's where we've gone wrong. And also, one thing I greatly object to is the unthinking translation of text, because there are so many words that are so commonly used in the translation of text, which don't actually have any equivalent in ancient Egypt. Egypt is a good example. The word Egypt itself is a very, and the language is called ancient Egyptian. But in fact, of course, there is no ancient Egyptian word for Egyptian. So you have to, they invented the idea of a nation, but what their idea of a nation was was very different from ours. So down the tubes goes the idea of unification, the king of Egypt, blah, 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 another word king, another word gods, uh, all these words, city, all these words are words that need careful re-examination if we're really to understand what these amazing people were doing. So it seems like we really need to think afresh about the whole period of Egyptian history. I think so, yes. I think, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of modern studies are going in the reverse direction. I, I just read a, a book uh, about warfare in the New Kingdom, which talks about the Egyptian battles as they're fighting in Iraq. You know, we're offered translations for words like checkpoint. Next thing you know, it'll be suicide bomber. I mean, it's, um, we're just traipsing along, continuing to reinvent ancient Egypt in our own image, and it's much more interesting. Do you think this is partly the fault of the Victorians because they had a very strong influence on how we thought about ancient Egypt? Yeah, and I think it's also, yes, and the, the, uh, especially the German uh, Egyptological effect on the university system in the English-speaking world because the turn of the last century, the greatest of English-speaking Egyptologists will train in Germany. And a lot of those things which ended up in Germany with, you know, death and disaster in two world wars, um, uh, a lot of those opinions which are at the root of that are still absolutely unchallenged in Egyptology. I, I can show you modern textbooks today which are full of stuff which, if you were writing about modern races, you'd be prosecuted for racism, actually. You know, so, yeah, I think there's a, a, a whole lot we need to do to change it. That was John Romer. A History of Ancient Egypt, From the First Farmers to the Great Pyramid, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Look out for a review of the book in our July issue. Well, that's about it for this episode. We'll be back next week when we'll be considering the reigns of Queens Elizabeth I and II. And in the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find blogs, quizzes, galleries and much, much more. Plus, don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and it's produced by Dave Gibson.